Welcome back to another episode of Myths and Mysteries in Black and White with your two hosts, Josh and Ed. Hello. First things first, as always, Ed, how you been, mate? All right, yeah, <laughs> not too bad. It's been a bit of a bit of a weird week. Like, yeah. But, nah, nah, not too bad, not too bad. Here's what it is. But, yeah, yourself? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, pretty much same. I was on about it last week. They did it. <laughs> Manchester City won the treble. <laughs> Just... Football's dead. <laughs> football has officially died. So rest in peace, football. We had a good run. <laughs> but that pretty good. Uh, first things first, I will say, if we look like a pair of sweaty belly- bettys, I do apologise. It is very, very, very warm right yeah. now. It's like 30 degrees and we're in a shed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, do apologise for that, but it is like a freaking sauna in here. Mm. So, yeah. but... No, um, this week, we said last week, uh, we covered the victims of Jack the Ripper. This week, we will be talking about who he could possibly be. A whodunit. Or a whodunit. Exactly. But no, yeah, I'll just, um, oh, there was something I wanted to say, but I don't know. <laughs> it's gone. But no, like, um, just want to appreciate everyone who does listen to us. I mm-hmm. mean, this is like, this is the last. This is the last topic episode, yeah. Of this season. The penultimate episode of season two. Yeah. And what we mean by that is um, next week, hopefully, well, next week we'll be doing uh, another special episode like what we've done last season mm-hmm. where we do a Q&A um, and we'll talk about what we're going to be doing like further on and just basically reminiscing about what, what's yeah. happened this season. Yeah, reminisce and also um, our future endeavours, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, exactly. So, if you do have any uh, questions or anything, it doesn't have to be podcast related. If you want to ask questions about the podcast, about us, about future investigations, about previous investigations, yeah, literally anything you want to ask us, please let us know. You can do that via the Facebook, the TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, email us. Literally any way you can get a hold of us, ask yeah. us questions, and as long as they're internet permitted. We will answer it. <laughs> so, yeah, please um, listen to the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get where you can reach out to us. Exactly. So, yeah. And as well, what I say is um, next week, we was just literally just mentioned investigations. Next Friday will be our second investigation. Again, it will be a paranormal investigation yeah. alongside the BTR. And that will be at the Neen Valley Rail. Rail Station, yeah. which you can still get tickets for, I believe. So if anybody around that area is interested and would like to come and meet yours truly, Oy. as well as BTR, as well as the owners from the Dark Realm Shop, yeah. if you yeah. want to uh, meet any of us and just want to be around to do an investigation with, please look up the website, um, the BTR website. I'll leave a link in the description and I'm like, um, tagged with this page as well. Get your tickets and come along and see your boys. Yeah, be, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, get back out there. Like, so we, we've just, where's the time gone? 
it's flown by. It yeah. only feels like yesterday we did the Dark Realms investigation. Yeah. yeah. And it was January. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't January. It's no, all Josh. It's <laughs> last month. No. It was Norfolk Folklore was January. Yeah. That's right. That's gone quick as well. Yeah. You know? like, that, that, yeah, I can still remember... I still remember that day. Incredible. Yeah, but uh, but no, like yeah, yeah. So look forward, look forward to that. Yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting. But um, yeah. So should we get on? Let's crack on, brother. Let's crack on. Um, the Whitechapel murders were the focus of a huge criminal investigation that saw the Victorian police pit their wits against a lone assassin who was perpetrating his crimes in one of nineteenth-century London's most densely populated and crime-ridden quarters. As a result of official reports and efforts of journalists to keep abreast the progress, or perhaps more accurately lack of progress, that the police investigation was making, um, and that they were able to watch the investigation unfold. Um, the methods that the police used and tried to track the killer and compare them with the methods that the police would use today we we can also ask and hopefully answer the question, why didn't the police catch Jack the Ripper? Mm-hmm. The Victorian police faced numerous problems as they raced against time to catch the killer before he could kill again. A major one was the labyrinth-like layout of the area where the murders were occurring. Made up, as it was, of lots of tiny passageways and alleyways, a few of which were lit by night. And of course, the detectives hunting the killer were hampered by the fact that criminology and forensics were very much in their infancy. Mm-hmm. So that basically it wasn't a lot bad. No. <clears throat> um, the Jack the Ripper murders presented the Victorian police with a type of crime that they had little experience of handling. The detectives who dealt with the investigation into the killings found themselves pitting their wits against a lone assassin who wasn't leaving them any clues to go on. In addition, the murderer was committing his crimes in one of the most crime-ridden quarters of Victorian London. Where, uh, hang on, have I read that bit? Oh, I fucked up, I <laughs> uh, Another aspect of the case was that the police who conducted the investigation into Jack the Ripper murders lacked many of the techniques that their 21st century counterparts would take for granted in a murder investigation of this kind fingerprinting, CSI, bonded forensics, and even crime scene photography were simply not used in police investigation at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. I mean, this was Victorian England. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in addition, the use of the media was not recognised as being a useful means of bringing a killer such as Jack the Ripper to the book. Today, the police would utilise the press in, a, in an attempt to gain valuable information. But the attitude of the Victorian police was to keep the journalists at arm's length out of a, out of a fear that they might reveal their lines of inquiry to the criminal. The press reacted to this lack of cooperation by grubbing around for any morsels of information that they could find and showed their frustration at the police's refusal to share information by subjecting the police to a barrage of criticism. This criticism can have um, can have done the morale of the detectives who were carrying out the police investigation into Jack the Ripper murders no good. That morale had already been sapped by a series of squabbles, resignations and general backbiting between senior officers and home office mandarins that in the words of one popular publication had effectively decapitated the detective department at Scotland Yard. 
Right, let's look at people who might have done it. Mm -hmm. And the first name on here is a man called James Monroe. His place was taken by James Monroe, Dale Scott, who developed an extremely frosty relationship with Edward Jenkinson. Big up Edward. Who was running a secret home office department that was attempting to infiltrate Fenian terrorists. Jenkinson's... Uh, hang on. Yeah. Uh, Jenkinson's dubious and extremely secretive methods caused Monroe a great deal of concern, and for m several years, he and Jenkinson enjoyed a work relationship of mutual loathing and mistrust. Ultimately, Monroe would emerge as a victor when Jenkinson was forced to step. Oh, no, I think this is another actual copper. <laughs> Suspects, right? We're on it now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Apologise, James. Yeah, sorry, boy. <laughs> uh, despite, um, despite the fact that no one was ever brought to justice or charged with the crimes, there have over the years been more than a hundred named suspects who may or may not have been Jack the Ripper. Don't worry, I ain't doing a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, that's whole season Jesus in itself. Christ. <laughs> Some of those suspects are fascinating, whilst others are downright ridiculous. Aaron Kuzminski, Thomas Cutbra, Cutbush, and Montague John Durrett are suspects that fall into the first category, while Prince Albert, Edward Victor, the Freemasons, and Lewis Carroll belong firmly in the latter category. Yeah. Yet one thing is certain, no matter how unlikely the names of those that, ap that appear on the ever-expanded list of suspects might be the ongoing challenge of nailing the Ripper has helped keep the series of crimes at the forefront of criminal and social history for over 125 years. Which is mad. Yeah. <laughs> 125 years. Yeah, and still... And they still don't know. Nah. Um, the number of Jack the Ripper suspects now runs well over 100. Some of them are highly possible contenders for the mantle of Jack the Ripper. Others are just downright ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Each year, several books come out claiming that the authors have managed to crack the case and have solved the world's greatest murder mystery. Some of them, admittedly, have managed to unearth fascinating little nuggets of information and in so doing, have added an extra little piece to the jigsaw. Right. But the majority tend to twist the facts to fit their particular theory as opposed to looking at the theory and demonstrating how it stands up against the known facts about the case. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> In the early days, the police appear to have believed that the crimes were being carried out by one of the local gangs, and thus their investigation focused on these so-called high-rip gangs. However, by early September 1888, the police had come to the conclusion that there were that the local were the local gangs responsible. The publicly and panic that the murders had generated would have led one of the members to inform on the on the others. By the time of the murder of Annie Chapman on eighth of september eighteen eighty eight, the police seemed to have decided that they were in fact looking for a lone assassin and began seeking ways to bring him to justice. There was a great amount of speculation that the killer demonstrated some amount of medical and or anatomical knowledge. Oh, 
anatomical. Is it? Big up word. Another A. All the A's. Big up the A's. <laughs> to this end, the police began looking into the activities of several medical students who have spent time in asylums. However, this line of inquiry drew a blank as the movements of these students were accounted for and they were ruled out for involvement in the crimes. Others disagreed that the murderer was demonstrating any great degree of medical skill and opened it that his abilities were little more than those of a butcher or a slaughterman. Mm-hmm. The police therefore carried out an extensive inquiries amongst the numerous local butchers and slaughterhouses, but yet again, nothing came of their investigation. Yeah. As all the alibis checked out, thus eliminating those interviewed as suspects. Throughout the hunt of Jack the Ripper, the police remained convinced that they were looking for a suspect who lived in the district, and on the whole, their inquiries and investigation focused on the neighbourhood where the crimes were occurring. Over 2,000 interviews were carried out by the Victorian police. More than 300 people were actually investigated and 80 people were detained in police custody. Fucking hell. It is possible that Jack the Ripper was one of these, but none of the interviews, investigations or detentions yielded anything concrete that enabled the police to point the finger at one suspect and say that he was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Ever since the Jack Ripper murders ended suspect after suspect has put them forward as being responsible for them. Prince Albert Edward Victor, Lewis Carroll, the Freemasons and Dr. Bernardo are just a few of the more outlandish Jack the Ripper suspects to have been put forward. Others such as Thomas Cutbush and Carl Fagenbaum were put forward around the time of the murders, discarded as likely suspects, and then found themselves brought back into the frame thanks to modern research or their asylum records being open to the public. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh dear. But these, are, I think I can't remember how many I've got now. But these are now the suspects. First one, James Maybrick. In 1992, Michael Barrett, a, for, a former Liverpool scrap metal merchant, produced a journal which he claimed had been given to him by a friend, Tony Devereux, in a pub the previous year. Although the author of the diary doesn't actually identify himself by name, it's quite obvious from various personal references and from other information contained within the journal that the diarist is meant to be the Liverpool cotton merchant James Maybrick. Maybrick died in May 1889. <laughs> I was going to say, he lived a fair while, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, 1889, and shortly after his death, his wife Florence was arrested and charged with murdering him by poisoning him with arsenic. Jesus! In the diary, the author makes the claim that he had seen his wife, whom he calls the bitch or the whore, in the, in the pages of the diary with her unnamed lover in the Whitechapel district of Liverpool. The subsequent rage that he experienced following this sighting sent him on a murderous rampage in the Whitechapel district of London, in the, in the course of which he mutilated and killed five prostitutes. But surely, if that was the case, she would have been the first victim. Because mm-hmm. she would have started it, and if he's referring to her as a whore and everything, if she's having an affair with someone from Whitechapel, you'd think she would have been the first victim. Yeah, you would, but also that would make it look too suspect. So was he like taking his anger out on other people? That's what so I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like he was like, if I kill her, I'm gonna get caught mm. straight away. If I kill these other prostitutes, 
no one's going to find them. Yeah. I'll get to take my anger out on them. But you wish you killed her now, though. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Um, the journal contains a somewhat long-winded description of the murders before ending with the assertion, I give my name that all uh, that all know of me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Hmm. Is he just... Any Tom, Dick or Harry could have written yeah, that. Yeah, is he just riding the phone? Yeah. Up until, but then again, if it was a diary and he locked it up, he done it so it's for his eyes only. But if you're signing it, yours truly, Jack the Ripper, you're hoping someone finds that one day. Or maybe, or it's just his alter ego. What? It's just Clark Kent, Superman, Bruce Wayne, Batman, whatever his name was, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, he like they call start like the the press and that start calling him Jack the Ripper, and he was like, oh. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, you know when um, when Heath Ledger was the Joker? I know yeah. this is going on a bit of a weird one. When he was a Joker, he had a diary, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And when he he when he done finished playing the Joker, he signed off mm. as the Joker. Joker. It's pretty much putting that character to bed. Yeah. Yeah, maybe then. Could he have done that? Very well, maybe. Um... Up until the emergence of the diary, there had been any, there had never been any suggestion that James Maybrick may have been Jack the Ripper, and the only real evidence against him as a suspect is his own supposed confession in the pages of his diary. So his viability as a Jack the Ripper suspect comes down to whether or not he wrote the diary, and if he did, does that, does what he writes about his crimes correspond with the known facts? It is said that. Uh, it is to be said that the pro- uh, provenance of the diary has proved hugely dividing issue amongst ripperologists. Ripperologists, people that just study Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Fair play. Fair man. play. And thus, the path to providing the guilt or innocence of James Maybrick as a viable Jack the Ripper suspect has been anything but straightforward. Mm-hmm. The first reaction from experts on examining the diary was encouraging. Several of them agreed that, if nothing else, it was most certainly of the correct period to have been written by James Maybrick. Mm-hmm. But they also made it plain that a far more thoroughly forensic analysis was needed in order to establish, establish exactly when the journal was written. And it was at this point that the scientific data became somewhat blurred and contradictory. Right. A further setback to establishing the authenticity of the diary came when Michael Barrett informed the Liverpool Post that he had in fact forged the diary. Well, that was that then. <laughs> However, he then withdrew his confession and in addition his wife, from whom he was by then separated, said that the diary had been had in fact been in her family's possession since the Second World War. So the jury is still still very much out on whether or not the diary's authenticity has been scientifically proven. Yeah. Um, the de- uh, so about the de- actual details um, about the crimes that are contained within the pages of the diary, do they demonstrate that the author did indeed have first-hand knowledge that could have only been known by the per- to the perpetrator of the Jack the Ripper crimes? Mm-hmm. 
In a word, no. No. <laughs> it is apparent on close scrutiny of the diary that many of the descriptions of the crimes and the crime scenes are actually taken from press reports and later accounts of the Jack the Ripper murders, and that because of this, the journal replicates some of the widespread inaccuracies and errors with regards to the Jack the Ripper murders. Yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> As far as the murder of Mary Ke- of Mary Kelly goes, for example, the author gloats of how he placed b- parts of her body all over her room, and goes into sickening details of how he had cut off her breasts and having kissed them for a while, he set he set them down upon the bedside table. The idea of Mary Kelly's body parts being spread all over the room, or in some accounts being hung around around the walls like Christmas decorations, is most certainly not the case, and there is no denying fact that the murder scene inside 13 Miller's Court, that's where Mary Kelly's body was discovered, mm-hmm. was horrific, but the mutilated body parts were on the whole confined to the bed and its immediate vicinity, and, and had most certainly not been stru- strewn or even strung around the room. Yeah. Indeed, the police and other official reports make it obvious that this was demonstrated. Demonstrated? Demonstrably? Demonstrably? Demonstrated. Yeah, (laughs) not the case. (laughs) Likewise, her breasts were not placed on the bedside table, as as is stated by the diarist, but were in fact found beneath her body. These are just two examples of common fallacies and misconceptions concerning the scenes of the crimes, and which therefore suggests that the diary was not written from the authors for having any first-hand experience of the crime scenes, but rather from him or her having read inaccuracy, inaccurate accounts and descriptions of the crime scenes. Combine, the, combine these tend to cast doubt on the author's visit viability as the Jack the Ripper suspect. Mm-hmm. There is, however... Another intriguing piece of memorabilia that links Maybrick to the Jack the Ripper crimes. In 1993, Albert Johnson purchased an antique gold watch on the on the inside of which he, fa- he found scratched the initials of Jack the Ripper's five victims, together the signature J. Maybrick, and the words, I am Jack. Right, but with that... The, the the victim's names became well, common knowledge. knowledge. Yeah, he became obsessed with it. He yeah, because like, it's like it's like a fantasy yeah. for him to do this. So he's become so obsessed with it. He he him him, him and himself thinks he is Jack, Jack the, Ripper. the Ripper. Especially if he said he's been into an asylum as well, didn't it? No. Oh, <laughs> shut up, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I think with that. Um, He's just so hell bent on being Jack the Ripper. He truly, yeah, believed it in himself that he was that everything he had, he just wanted to be him. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like he generally thought it was his alter ego. Yeah. As with the diary, the watch has been subjected to scientific analysis, and the scratches have been found to be compatible with the period eighteen eighty eight to eighteen eighty nine. How do you get that? From a scratch. Yeah, from scratches. Like, Mate, oh yeah, that was definitely done then. Science is like, madness. It's ridiculous. It must have been like aging of the scars. Yeah, maybe. Like that. I don't know. Um, although these findings have been disputed. But the sudden appearance of the watch so soon after the diary was made public aroused a great deal of suspicion. 
and whereas it is possible that they were both created at the same time. Their usefulness in proving Maybrick's guilt depends on proving that they are genuine, and this has never been satisfactorily done. The arguments both for and for against the viability of James Maybrick as Jack the Ripper um, suspect continues, and although the general consensus is that the diary is a forgery, although whether it is done in the 19th or late 20th centuries is still contested. Right. So what do you think? Personally, I don't think it's him. No. No. I think there's too much against it. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, like, the diary sounds plausible, but then when they're like... It don't match any of the crimes, anything like that. Which, if you were him, you're going to know, especially the last one, how graphic it was, you're going to know to like the minute detail. Yeah. Yeah. What you did. Because you weren't in a frenzy doing that. No. You was very cool, calm, calculated of what you were doing. Yeah, no, I agree totally. Yeah. I did I don't think and it just seems so perfect. Yeah. It like oh we found we found the diary of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Like it just seems so romantic. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like not in like shagging like. Yeah, I know what you mean. But like <laughs> it's like, oh it's just fitting. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's I don't I can't see that being the case. No. So I don't personally think that. I mean I like it's quite a Interesting one, like how the, a person's mind has fallen, maybe due to the fact that his wife was cheating on him, yeah. was having an affair, and it's just drove him mad that he just wanted to become Jack the, Jack Ripper, the Ripper, that he started to take on that persona yeah. without actually causing any of the murders, mm-hmm. but he's fantasising deeply about doing them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, oh, and I, I think he had a hit. Ain't him. Nah, I don't think it is. The next one, who I have met mentioned little bits of is Thomas Cutbush in November 2008 the files of Thomas Cutbush were made public at the Reading Records office whereas these files don't contain any earth shattering revelations that directly linked Thomas Thomas Cutbush with the Jack the Ripper killings they certainly provide an intriguing insight into into a man who was evidently a favoured media suspect in the mid 1890s Cutbush was named as Jack the Ripper in a series of articles that appeared in The Sun newspaper in February 1894. The articles went into great to a great deal of detail about the Whitechapel murderer, although they didn't actually name Cutbush in those articles. Right. <clears throat> as a result of those articles, Melville McNaughton composed his m- memorandum which for many years formed the basis of for Jack the Ripper research. Oh dear, excuse me. In the Miranda, McNaughton states emphatically that the Whitechapel murderer had five five victims and five vic- and five victims only. Gosh, a tongue twister. <laughs> was a lip twister more than anything. <laughs> five victims only. It is as a result of this statement that we have a so-called canonical five um five victims uh mary nichols annie chapman elizabeth stride catherine eddowes and mary kelly mcnaughton also provides a great deal of argument to support the fact that the sun article was wrong and that thomas cutbush was not jack the ripper as a result cutbush has long been dismissed as a serious contender for the mantle of the whitechapel murderer mm-hmm um, 
McNaughton, uh, or McNaughton, whatever his name is, does mention the names of three other suspects, of which, of which he says that anyone, uh, any one of them is more likely than Cutbush to have been the murderer. These suspects were MJ Druitt, Michael Ostrog, and Kosminski. Interestingly, he is wrong about many things he says about every one of these three men. But as a result of his muse, uh, musings, more attention has been paid over the years um, to these three suspects than has been paid to Thomas Cutbush. Having faithfully transcribed Thomas Cutbush files at the record office, um, the, inten- uh, the intention here is not to accuse Tom- Thomas Cutbush of being Jack the Ripper, but rather to put on record the, inv- the known information about him. The files most certainly disprove one thing that both the Sun article and McNaughton wrote about Cutbush in the memoranda. The Sun article claimed that Cutbush had caught venereal disease, yeah, venereal disease from a prostitute, and that the resultant delusions were that led him to kill prostitutes. <laughs> he got the clap. It was like, nah, I ain't having this, bro. <laughs> <laughs> McNaughton. Uh, conceded that Cutbush had apparently contracted syphilis about 1888 and since at that time he led an idle and useless life. His brain seems to have become affected and he believed that people were trying to poison him. However, Cutbush's admission documents and his asylum records make no mention of syphilis or venereal disease. Indeed, records of criminal lunatic bat, uh, number X32007 Thomas Cutbush state that the cause of his insanity was hereditary, whilst also mentioning that, according to his aunt, Clara Hayne, the cause was overstudy. According to the records, he was not suicidal, but he was a danger to others. In his notes after admission, there is a re- report dated April. 24th, 1891, which states that Cutbush was a man of average height and slight build. It, um, slight build. Expression vacant, eyeballs protruding, is restless and incoherent in conversation. Stated this morning that he had often been drunk, though not a drinker. Afterwards, that he had never been drunk through, uh, through drink, as he had been a total ab- abstainer for years that the charges brought against him were absolutely false and that he had no recollection of doing anything to cause such charges to be brought against him. Mm-hmm. He was more the appearance of an imbecile than any other kind of insane person. State um, States that he feels sulfur rise into his throat from a cavity in the left lung, that he does not taste, or s- taste it or smell it or feel it, but know that it is, so that... So in that consequence, he has tuberculosis. Um, that he suffered from palpitation of the heart some time ago, but not lately. States that he was at Peckham House Asylum on a visit for a few days after he was charged with his crime. He states that there is no insanity in his family, although he thinks both his mother and aunt are bad enough <laughs> to want <laughs> bad enough to want care in the way of being eccentric. Says he has often suffered from fits and uncontrollable temper his tongue is tremulous complains of slight headache this morning which he states is unusual 
Another report, dated 20th of May, 1891, told how Cutbush struck another patient, Gilbert Cooper, suddenly and without cause, whilst in the in the gallery. He states that Cooper caught hold of him, um, caught hold of him at the back of the neck with his fingers. This, this, the attendant in charge states is quite untrue, as he, the attendant, was talking to Cooper at the time. Will not speak to me or explain the reason for doing so in any way. Stated at first that Cooper annoyed him. Is very dull, excitable, uncontrollable, and has the appearance of an imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> On, He's a monk. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> on August 24th, 1891, it was reported that Cutbush had well conducted, well conducted lately, but requires careful supervision, no improvement mentally. But by 16th of March, 1892, Cutbush was said to be violent and very destructive at times. It's generally dull and apathetic and makes no attempt to answer when spoken to. It appears to be an imbecile. Mm-hmm. That must be. That must have been like such a slur back in the yeah. day. Yeah, you're an imbecile. You're an imbecile. <gasps> How dare! You? According to the next <laughs> that report, that was their day, retard. Yeah, pretty much. According to the next report, on April fifteenth, eighteen ninety-three, Cutbush was becoming more and more demented. Scarcely ever speaks to anyone, with the, with the exception of the principal attendant. If you refuses to see any of his relations when visited by them, bodily health somewhat better has been taking cod liver oil for some time. By April 22nd, 1894, it was reported that he was becoming demented, dirty and degraded in habits, stubborn, unoccupied and silent, makes grimaces and attitudinesses when addressed, physical health satisfactory. And on 21st of March, 1895, he, he was said to be dirty, destructive, degraded and demented, health very good. However, 25th of July, 1896, he was reported as being rather cleaner in habits, although otherwise there is no change in his mental state. Physical health, good. By 20th of March, 1898, he had become demented, absurd and incoherent. On August 1st, 1902, it was reported that Cutbush, very dirty and gives much trouble, constantly noisy at night, demented and incoherent. He died on the 15th of July, 1903. So he was just slowly just falling. Could someone like that be able to do these no, murders? No. no. I don't believe so. Not how precise they were. No. And plus as well, if you're like insane, for lack of a better word, you're like it would be more frenzied attacks than it would be... Yeah. ...calculated, so to speak. Yeah, cause, like, it's because you've got to remember as well with the victims... Mm. Each one of them had the throat cut. Well, apart from the last one, mm. had the throat cut and the blast lift up. Lift up. And yeah, but there's some of them were mutilated. Like, yeah. They were like slashes but, on the stomach and stuff like that. Nah, he's too insane. It wouldn't be done in that in the way it's said. No. Like you say, especially like the first one where um, that, uh, the slaughter man. Mm. No, it was the watchman, sorry. Night watchman. Was it Watchman? Was it? Well, that no, man... He said it to the Night Watchman, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that uh, there's been a murder, murder down there. Yeah. And walk... he'd, he'd be... Do you know what I mean? You'd look a crack at it. Yeah, but yeah, then you would be like, right, I'm taking him in. Yeah, you exactly. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so I, I don't think... No. I don't think he has the mental capabilities of To do it. so. 
He seems too demented, too deranged. Don't get me wrong, you've got to be deranged to do these murders. Oh, yeah. Because you can't be sane in the head to do them. <laughs> but at the same time, he seems too far gone. To be able to do to it. To do it with that precision. precision. Yeah. Especially the last murder. Yeah. That Mary Kelly ver- uh, murder, what was just absolutely... Brutal. Brutal. Absolutely, yeah, disgusting. So, if you don't know what we're on about... There's an episode one. Yeah. Or oh, part one. Even, <laughs> yeah, sorry. part one. And then you'll know. Exactly. But she was the last murder, so you'd actually have to listen to the whole thing. What a shame. (laughs) We just just want the listens, mate. Just Just listen, please. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, we're on like 2.8 now, aren't we? Yeah. 2.8 thousand listeners. So big up every single one of you. That's recurring listeners. Yeah. I can't go over. So big up, people. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. But, um, yeah, that's all I've got on yeah. Cutbush. The next one is Dr. Francis Tumble, um, Tumblety. <laughs> what a name. Yeah. One of the more talked-about recent Jack the Ripper suspects is Dr. Francis Tumblety, whose name was suggested by Inspector Littlechild. <laughs> Don't. Inspector Littlechild. Yeah. <laughs> just, just think of that word for me. Inspect a little child. <laughs> <laughs> you would not want to be him. <laughs> yeah, oh yes, but yeah, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> um, prior to and during the Jack the Ripper murders, Chief Inspector John Littlechild um, was a he- was head of the Metropolitan Police's Special Irish Branch, a post he held from 1883 to 1893. Although Littlechild um, had very little to do with the Jack the Ripper investigation itself. As a high-ranking police officer in the Metropolitan Police, he most certainly um, would have had frequent contact with the likes of Dr. Robert Anderson and Chief Inspector Swanson. Mm -hmm. In 1913, the journalist George Sims was sniffing around for the information on a Jack the Ripper suspect. He duly wrote to John Littlechild to ask if he had any known... Uh, knowledge of a Dr. D being suspected for having committed the Whitechapel murders. Sims was evidently referring to Ripper suspect Montague John Druitt, whose name, or at least hints of it, had been circulating through police circles for the for the previous 15 or so years. Mm-hmm. Little Child wrote back to say that he had never heard of a Dr. D ever um, ever having been mentioned as a suspect, but he then went on to suggest a suspect who, in England at least, had not been mentioned up to that point. Little Child wrote, Amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one was a Dr. T. T, not D. Who was an American quack named Tumblety. He then went on to inform Sims that Tumblety had been arrested for unnatural offences, that he had been remanded on bail, that he had subsequently jumped bail and escaped to Boulogne, after which nothing was ever heard from him again. Indeed, according to Littlechild, it was believed he committed suicide, but certain it is that from the name The Ripper murders comes... Uh, came to an end. 
Dr. Francis Tumblety had been arrested and charged with the acts of gross indecency with a sub with a number of males on seventh november eighteen eighty eight. The little child stated in his letter to Sims he had been remanded on bail, which he did which he did indeed skip <laughs> and then he had headed for Boulogne. Boulogne. Okay now. It's, it's the heat man. Yeah, <laughs> However, contrary to little Charles' assertion that he disappeared and probably committed suicide, Tumble T was most certainly heard heard from again. Having made it to Boulogne, Tumble T sailed to New York and on landing soon had the American press hot on his trail in relation to his possible connection to the Whitechapel murders. From the moment of his arrival in New York, the New York Police Department also took an interest in him and Tumble T was kept under surveillance by Inspector Bar- Burns of the New York Police. Mm-hmm. Questioned by journalists as he kept watch on Tumble T's lodging about whether or not Tumble T would be returning to London to be questioned about the Jack the Ripper murders, Burns responded, "There is no proof of this." Uh, com- uh, Tumble T's complicity in the Whitechapel murder, in the Whitechapel murders, and the crime for which he was under bond in London. Is not extra, extra, extradited. Extra, no, extra, extraditable, extradit, extraditable, extraditable. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Basically, for those that don't understand, his crimes don't matter because it's in a different country. Right. According to the New York Times, Spectre Burns laughed at the suggestion that he was the Whitechapel murderer. A claim often made to back up Tumble T's possible involvement in the Jack the Ripper murders is that he is known to have collected medical sample specimens, including uteri. But there is a scant evidence to suggest that he ever did. The allegation that he did was made by Colonel C.S. Dunham to the Williamsport Sunday Grit, in which he mentioned being a guest at a dinner at which he had witnessed Tumble T fiercely denounced all women, and especially fallen women. Dunham went on to mention that Tumble T had then taken his guests to his office, where he showed them a dozen or more jars containing the uterine of every class of women. Mm-hmm. But Dunham's veracity is, to say the least, questionable. He himself was known was no confidence trickster who only made his claims after press allegations had linked Tumblety to the Whitechapel murders. It is therefore highly possible, if not likely, that he made the story up in order to cash in on Tumblety's sudden notoriety. Right. Another oft-quote piece of evidence against Tumblety is that, is that people knew him, thought he was the killer. Oh, really? Yeah. Again, this is mere hearsay. Some of them might have thought so, but others were adamant that he wasn't. One woman, who most certainly didn't think he was capable of the crimes, was his New York landlady, Miss Miss McNamara, McNamara, who was quoted in the New York Herald as saying that Miss Doctor Tumblety is a perfect gentleman; he wouldn't hurt anybody. 
The case of Tumblety's involvement in the Jack the Ripper murders is a fairly weak one. Mm. Moreover, there is no concrete evidence that he ever visited Whitechapel and he most certainly bore no resemblance to the descriptions by those who may have seen the face of the killer. Mm -hmm. There is no evidence that he was ever violent, a view with which even Little Child concurred as in his letters to Sims. He states that Tumblety was not known as sadist, uh, which the murderer unquestionably was. Sadist. Sadist. Thank you. <laughs> Furthermore, three years after receiving Little Child's letter, uh, letter George, Sim George Sims wrote his own autobiography mm. and made no mention of Tumblety's having been the Jack the Ripper, but stuck to his original beef belief in his Dr. D theory. The final nail in the coffin of the case against Do Francis Tumblety is that the Metropolitan Police themselves don't appear to have considered him a viable suspect. Had they thought him responsible for the Jack the Ripper murders, it is unlikely that they would have released him on bail. Even if they had, his whereabouts were known to their New York counterpart, who could have arrested and extradited him at any point. Mm -hmm. The reason... Francis Tumblety was not arrested in New York and extradited to England to face charges over the Jack the Ripper crimes can only be that he had been ruled out of any involvement in the Jack the Ripper murders. I was going to say, even if he's been arrested and released on bail on that, there's nothing even remotely pointing towards him being a killer. No. Nothing at all. No. The only way is because he was a doctor. Yeah. That, that is literally it. And that Which, so that would be because of the positions of the cuts and shit. Yeah. But countless adopters exactly. must have been questioned. You got to think back then, barbers were classed as doctors. They used to yeah. they used to do minor surgeries and that, which is mad. That's why you have the pole. Yeah, the poles and that. So with that, yeah, I can't. Nah, I can't see it. The next one uh, suspect is Walter Sickert. The name of Walter Sickert has been linked to the Jack the Ripper murders by several authors, and over the years his role in the killings has been said to have varied enormously. According to some authors, he was an accomplice in the Whitechapel murders, whilst others have depicted him as knowing who was responsible for the crimes and duly informing on them. He was a rat, pretty much. But according to the crime novelist Patricia Cornwall, in her 2002 book Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper case closed. Sickert was in fact the man who carried out who carried out the crimes that had become known as the Jack the Ripper murders. As a successful and wealthy novelist, Cornwall was not restricted by the constraints of budget when she set out to hunt down history's most notorious serial killer. She set out to do something that few, if any other Ripperologists, had had been either able or inclined to do, namely apply modern forensic techniques to the Jack the Ripper case and in doing so solve once and for all the world's greatest murder mystery. This is true, big up Patricia. Yeah, massively. When her book was published, it caused a worldwide sensation and the spotlight was turned on both Cornwall herself and on her suspect. I do believe 100% she told a US chat show that Walter Richard Sickert committed those serial crimes. According to Cornwall's theory, Walter Sickert has, had been made uh, impotent by a series of painful childhood operations with the f fistula of the penis. What's that mean? He had his dick cut off? 
it, I guess it don't work. <laughs> <laughs> you got the facilities for that big yeah. man. <laughs> this impotency had scarred him emotionally and had left him with a pathological hatred of women. What? Well, Ain't their fault. Ain't their fault. <laughs> that your pecker don't work. <laughs> <laughs> which, in time, led him to carry out a series of murders in the East End of London, which became known as the Jack the Ripper murders. Doubts were raised about the theory when it was pointed out that St Mark's Hospital, where the operations on the young sicker were suppo- supposedly performed, specialised in rectal as opposed to genital fistulas. Wait, 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 wait. So they specialise in your ring piece and they've decided to do something to his old boy? Well, that's the thing. They're saying that the hospital where apparently this was done only really done your ring. <laughs> if you was an adult, you had to have this done. It's like, oh, we normally specialise in rectal. You ain't going anywhere no, near me Tory, thing. son. That's what I mean. Like, they, they're saying that they didn't do it. Ah, they I was wouldn't. gonna say they wouldn't. They wouldn't do no. it because they specialise in your bum bum. Yeah, in up your chuff, <laughs> not on your gory. Yeah, not on your love sauce. <laughs> it was also pointed out that the evidence suggests that Sickert was anything but impotent. Indeed, his first wife had divorced him, citing his adultery in a petition for a divorce. In addition, he is believed to have had several mis- mistresses and is thought to have fathered at least one Ill- illegitimate child. So the case of Sickert's being impotent appears to be non-existent. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so what evidence is there to suggest that Sickert possessed a pathological hatred of women? Again, not a great deal in portray of a killer. Cornwall cites a series of Sickert's paintings that were inspired by the murder in 1908 of a Camden Town prostitute by the name of Emily Dimmock. According to Patricia Cornwall's hypotheses, this series of pictures bears a striking resemblance to the post-mortem photographs of the victims of Jack the Ripper. Right. Now there is a little doubt that Sickert was fascinated by murder and in finding different ways in which he in which to depict the menace of the crime and the criminal. But to cite this as evidence that he was actually the murderer, and specifically the murderer who carried out the Jack the Ripper killings, is hardly definitive proof. Mm -hmm. When looking at a particular Jack the Ripper suspect, or any murder suspect for that matter, you need to be able to link your suspect with the crime. Well, yeah. You need to, for example, be able to place them at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. Here again, the case of Sickert unravels slightly, since there is evidence to suggest that he may not have been in England when the murders were committed. Well, there's your big problem there. (laughs) (laughs) A number of letters from several family members refer to him holidaying in France for a period that corresponds with most of the Ripper murders. Although it has been suggested that he might have travelled to London in order to commit the murders and then return to France, no evidence has been produced to suggest that he did so. Well, yeah, because there'd be like ferry like lists of ferry. Because back in them days, it was like obviously ferries to different countries, and you'd have a list of like a register. Yeah, yeah. You'd have so a... you'd have like countless. His name would be on countless registers yeah. saying, in, "Yeah, he went here, there, everywhere." Yeah, so, come back. So he went back. He yeah, exactly. Back. Cornwall also contends that Sickert was responsible for writing most of the Jack the Ripper correspondence and frequently uses statements made in those letters to strengthen a case against him. 
Authorities on the case, as well as the police at the time, nearly all share the opinion that none of the letters, not even the dear boss, received, that gave him his name, were the work of the killer. In addition, there is a problem that the style of the letters varies so greatly in, gram in grammatical, grammatical structure, spelling and handwriting that it's almost impossible for a single author to have created all of them. <clears throat> in her quest to prove Sickert's guilt, Cornwall also funded DNA tests on numerous stamps and envelopes which she believed that Sickert had licked and compared the DNA to that found on the Ripper letters. Interestingly, a possible match was found with the stamp on the Dr. Openshaw letter. Hmm. Um, crit critics, however, have pointed out that the DNA comparisons focused on my <sighs> mitochondrial DNA, which could, have be which could be shared by anything from between 1% and 10% of the population. Yeah. So it was hardly unique to Sickert. No. Another intriguing find was that the Dr. Openshaw letter, two other Jack the Ripper letters, and eight letters penned by Walter Sickert were all written on paper that bore the watermark of the Aberdeen paper manufacturer Alexander Peary and Sons. Though, but dissenters argued that the paper was widely available that the Sickert letters were written between 1885 and 1887, and that he probably wasn't using that paper in 1888. Mm -hmm. Sickert may well have been responsible for writing some of the Jack the Ripper correspondence, but since it is generally agreed that none of the letters was written by the murderer, it only makes him guilty of having written hoax letters. Right. The claim that he was also guilty of the Whitechapel murders is far from proven, and that the Jack the Ripper ca case is anything but closed. Basically, her whole DNA evidence is based on a stamp. Pretty much. Which is, like you said, used between 1% and 10% of the population. Mm. That is her only link it's to the, this it, guy. What they're saying is, is the DNA, what was found, they, they, it, it was so, it's so vague... Yeah. That you can't pinpoint it on one person. person. It can be between 1% and 10% yeah. of that population. So, say there was a million people. 1%. What's 1% of a million? 100, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Is it? Oh, I don't know. What? Yeah, whatever. Well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's more than one person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, again, nothing really on him either. Yeah. No, I think it's 10,000 or 1%. No, I don't know. And 10%. I maths, yeah, because so. 10% would be 100,000. Yes, it would, yeah. I failed maths, so don't ask me. But nah, it ain't him, Chief. Nah, I don't him. think so. So at the minute, none of who I've said no. sound like they could be him. No. So, now, let's just say all the suspects on this list. It could be none of them. Yeah. We we don't know. We no. never will know. Nah, that it's is just it. which one sounds more likely. Yeah. But so far, the first four... They ain't, got, they ain't through the boot camp. Nah. This next one, I think I did mention in the part one. Charles Cross. Yes, you did indeed. And you told everybody. To remember the name. To remember it the name. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, so if you do remember, I did say Charles Cross. Mm -hmm. 
It can sometimes seem the, that the main criteria for a person to be placed on the ever-growing list of Jack the Ripper suspects is for the person to have simply been in the area at the time of the murders, which, taken to its logical conclusion, reduces the Jack the, Jack the Ripper suspect pool to a mere 67,000 or so people. Meh. Meh 67,000. <laughs> Actually, um, the previous statement is a little flippant since for the suspect to be a viable one, you do have to place him in the area at the time of the crime. And ideally, you should be able to place him at the scene of the crime, which is the point at which the case against many Jack the Ripper suspects begins to fall horribly apart. Mm-hmm. Thing is, that does not mean that, that they didn't no. do it. Because you're not going to... What are, It's like any, like any crime. You don't... Hang about. You don't shit on your own doorstep. Well, no. I know, sorry, I'm using bad language. But you don't shit on your own doorstep. No. With that case, and that what I mean by that is, I'm not going to go around killing people around with speech because I live in with speech. If I was to do it, I'd be going miles out. Yeah. I mean, it's easier nowadays because we've got vehicles yeah. and stuff like that. But still. But even then, you wouldn't kill people near where you live because you just you you you're secluding yourself. Yeah, exactly. Into it. So in that case, I think in some ways they could have been done by an outsider. Yeah. Visiting or whatever. Yeah. Um, such is the case with Charles Allen Lechmere, or to use the name that he is better known under, Charles Cross. Mm-hmm. The man formerly known as Charles Cross was born in the parish of St Anne's Soho in 1849. His father was John Allen Lechmere, and his mother was Marie Louisa Lechmere. Following her husband's death, Marie married police constable Thomas Cross, and although Charles continued using the name Lichmere, he, for some reason, chose to give his name as Cross when he was reported. When he reported the fact that he had found the body of Marie Ann Nichols. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to recap, Charles Cross was the local carman or carter, um, who, whilst on his way to work at around three. 3.40am on August 31st, 1888, passed along Bucks Row and had the misfortune to stumble upon the body of Mary Nichols, the woman who is generally accepted as being as um, having been the first victim of the killer who went on to become known as Jack the Ripper. Or at least that's the story he told the police, and that's what he stated at the inquest into a, into the death of Mary Nichols, and pretty convincing he must have been too, since the police, the coroner, uh, that was Wind Baxter, the inquest jury, the newspapers, not to mention the generations of amateur sleuths and ripperologists down the years have been content to accept his version of events. Mm-hmm. The general consensus... Uh, has always been that Cross had the misfortune to stumble upon the body of Jack the Ripper's first victim as he made his way to work and that that their, his involvement in the case had ended. However, love that, however, <laughs> in 2012, several newspapers uh, carried out articles claiming that far from being an innocent bystander who had simply stumbled across the body of Mary Nichols, Cross was, in fact, the man who had murdered her and that his subsequent statements were a tissue of lies aimed at throwing the police off his trail. Now, I I have to say, 
one of the points I often make when I lecture on the case to students that setting about the main thing. Oh, in this, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> it's a bit added in there. I apologise. In this respect, Charles Cross fits the bill perfectly. Not only was he actually in the area at the time, mm-hmm. but he was also walking towards the very location where the murder occurred, mm-hmm. more or less at the exact time that the murder was being carried out. Yeah. So there's a big tick in favour of his being a suspect. There is n- this is how the Daily News reported his testimony at the inquest into Mary Nichols' death. Charles A. Cross, Carmen, said he had been in employment of Mercer's Pickford and Co. Co for some years. On Friday morning, he left home about half past three to go to work and passing through Bucks Row. He saw on the opposite side something lying against the gateway in the dark. He could not tell at first what it was. Mm -hmm. It looked like a tarpaulin sheet. But walking to the middle of the road, he saw it was a figure of a woman. At the same time, he heard a man about 40 yards away coming up Bucks Row in the direction in the direction witness had himself come. He stepped back and waited for the newcomer, who started on one side as if he feared that the witness might, meant to knock him down. The witness said, come and look over here, there's a woman. They both went across to the body, and the witness took hold of the hands while the other man stopped overhead and look, to look at her. The hands were cold and limp, and the witness said, I believe she's dead. Then he touched her face, which felt warm. The other man placed his hand on her heart, saying, I think she's breathing. But it's very little if she is. He suggested that they should shift her, meaning in the the witness's opinion, that they should seat her upright. The witness replied, I am not going to touch her. The woman's legs were uncovered. Her bonnet was off but close to her head. Mm -hmm. The witness did not notice that her throat was cut as the night was very dark. He and the other man left the deceased and in Baker's Row. They saw Police Constable Mizzen, whom they told that a woman was lying in Buck's Row. The witness added, she looks to me either dead or drunk. And the other man remarked, I think she's dead. The policeman answered, all right. <laughs> the other man left um, left witness soon afterwards. He appeared to be a carman, but the witness had never seen him before. The coroner, did you see the police comfortable Neil in Bucks Row? The witness, no, sir. I saw no one after leaving home except the man that overtook me. The constable in Baker's Row but, and the deceased. There was nobody in Bucks Row when we left. The coroner, did the other man tell you who he was? The witness, no, sir. He merely said that he would have fetched a policeman, but he was behind. But he was behind time. I was behind time myself. The presumption that always had been Robert Paul, the second person to arrive at the scene of Mary Nichols' murder, arrived at Buck Row shortly after Charles Cross had found her body. But according to those who favour Cross as a suspect. Paul actually interrupted Cross in the act of murdering Mary Nichols, and far from standing looking at the body, Cross was trying to cover up some of the wounds on the body that he himself had inflicted when Paul encountered him in Buck's Row. The theory goes that on hearing Robert Paul's approach, Cross had to think quickly, and so rather than flee the scene, 
and potentially draw suspicion to himself as, a, as the perpetrator, he chose to instead to remain at the scene and feign shock. According to a report in the Evening Standard, in its edition of the 3rd of September, what a day. <laughs> like I said last time, that's when legends are born, 3rd of September. Just saying. <laughs> 1888, Robert Paul recalled what happened thus. It was exactly a quarter to four when I was passed up Bucks Road to my work as a carman for Covent Garden Market. It was dark and I was hurrying along when I saw a man standing where the woman was. He came a little towards me, but as I knew the dangerous character of the locality, I tried to give him a wide berth. Few people like to come up and down here without being on their guard, for there are such terrible gangs about. There have been many knocked down and robbed at the spot. The man, however, came towards me and said, Come and look at this woman. I went and found the woman lying on her back. I laid hold of her waist and found that she was dead and her hands cold. It was too dark to see the blood around about her. I thought that she had been outraged and had died in a struggle. I was obliged to be punctual at my work, so I went on and told the other man I would send the first policeman I saw. I saw one in Church Road, just at the top of Bucks Road, who was going round calling people up, and I told him what I had seen. I asked him to come, but he did not say whether he should come or not. He continued calling the people up, which I thought was a great shame after I told him that the woman was dead. Mm -hmm. The woman was so cold that she must have been dead for some time, and either she had been lying there left to die, or she had been murdered somewhere else and carried there. If she had been lying there long enough to get so cold as she was as she was when I saw her, it shows that no policeman on the beat had been down there for a long time. If a policeman had been there, he must have seen her, uh, must have seen her, for she was in plain enough sight. Her bonnet was lying about two feet from her head. Those who favour Cross as a suspect argue that Robert Paul's account was at odds with the one given by Charles Cross. Mm-hmm. According to Cross, he had been walking along the opposite side of Bucks Row when he observed something lying in the gateway and he had only as gone as far as the middle of the road when he saw what was lying in the gateway and was in fact a, a figure of a woman. He was then he um he said still standing there when he heard Paul approach him. However, according to Robert Paul, Cross was actually standing where the woman was. Mm. In other words, it may well have been that Cross had just murdered Mary Nichols when Robert Paul came along Bucks Row and interrupted him performing his gruesome deed. The evidence against him. So if Charles Cross is a serious contender for the mantle of, of having been Jack the Ripper, then what other evidence is there that could seal his guilt and enable us to say for goodness knows how many if time case closed? Very little, sadly. One of the main points that arouses suspicion against him is that he gave the police a false name. According to authors and researchers Krista Holmgren and Edward Stowe, a lot of Edwards, I love it. <laughs> his name wasn't was his name in fact wasn't Charles Allen Cross. Um, he was he told the police and the inquest, but was in fact Charles Lechmere. He would have only given a false name, so the theory goes if he had something to hide 
that something being that he was embarking upon a reign of terror which over the coming weeks would see him eviscerate the bodies of five local women as he made his way from place of residence to his place of work however if his motivation was to keep the police off his trail the fact that he appears to have not only given the police his correct address and place of employment yeah but that he also appeared as a witness at the inquest into the death of mary nichols means he was either a cool and ruthless operator or that he gave the false name for some other reason one that can only be guessed at given the fact that it appears to have not been spotted or com- commented on at the time mm. especially because like that was his stepdad's name yeah so he's given even if it is a false name he's given his stepdad's name which has then put his family in the limelight mm-hmm. his workplace his mm. address yeah but then is he just hiding in place like? Yeah, because at the same time, if he showed up at the um, inquest into it, how many times have serial killers been spotted at an inquest? Like nowadays, do you know what I mean? Mm. They're always there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, you, you you see it on programs and that. Like, when a murder's happened, a lot of the time, the murderer is in, you He's know, like in the crowd. crowd. Yeah. Like, fucking hell, what, what's happened here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it was him. He's like, yeah, you see my handiwork. <laughs> Another point put forward by the crossists. The they're crossists. the pit, yeah, they're the ones who think <laughs> Charles Cross done it. Is that he was a local man, which many experts believe Jack the Ripper were, almost certainly was. Mm-hmm. In fact, he lived only a few streets to the east of Bucks Road at twenty-two Doveton Street, Bethnal Green. And he worked as a carman or cart driver for Pickford's in Broad Street, for 30 or so minutes to the west of Bucks Row. When he found the body of Mary Nichols, he was on his way to his place of employment at the Pickford's depot in Broad Street, a journey that would have taken him around 40 minutes on foot, and which would have taken <coughs> which have taken him through the streets that were destined over the coming weeks to become the epicentre of Jack the Ripper's killing ground. As the Daily Telegraph put it, when along with several other newspapers, it broke the story to, of his supposed guilt on 31st of August 2012. All the subsequent murders took place between his home on Doveton Street in Bethnal Green and place of work in Broad Street at times when he would have been walking to work. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, then, his route from home to work took took him along the very streets where the murders occurred. He must have been Jack the Ripper. Right, not that he fucking lived there all his life and he knows the same way to work. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? There's a shop around the corner from my house. If there was a murder there, don't instantly mean I did it. Mm. I'm going to the shop, bruv. <laughs> I need milk. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Except, and I hate to be pedantic, about this, Burner Street, where the murder of Elizabeth Stryer took place, isn't by any stretch of the imagination on a lo- on a logical trajectory from Dovetail Street to Broad Street, unless that is, you wish to discount Elizabeth Stride as a victim of Jack the Ripper, as admittedly some researchers do. Mm-hmm. However, the cross-lechmerists have an answer f- for this anomaly, arguing that his mother lived in Cable Street, to the south of Burner Street. Right. And so he may have murdered Elizabeth Stride on his way to or from a visit to his mother's residence. Well, it'd have to have been from, surely. Why? 
Because surely he'd get DNA and blood all over him. Well, not blood all over him, but you know what I mean? He'd have some sort of DNA on him. I know so, it can't be well, used back then. Say but... he was on gloves. Yeah, true. He could just put his Take gloves in off. his pocket. Well, he'd have a murder weapon on him as well, though, wouldn't he? Everyone had carried knives on that back then. Yeah. Yeah, true. That's what I mean. Can't disget you can't. Nah. Let's say, because we're trying to think of it of today when it weren't. It weren't. It was. Back then, everyone had. Well, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of people would have carried a knife or yeah. a gun, or you know what I mean. Especially or if something. there was like gangs around. You yeah, know. you had for it was like a showpiece, yeah. as well as self defense. Yeah, and being a cartman or something like that, he wanted he might need a knife, cut rope, mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's very possible. Um. Evidently, uh, Charles Cross Lichmere wasn't the type of man who, were, who could simply enjoy a leisurely stroll through the streets of Whitechapel without spicing his journey up with a spot of murderous mayhem en route. Interest, interestingly, there are suggestions that the Pickford's branch he worked at dealt with the delivery of meat, and that therefore, if he had actually had bloodstains on his hands... I think it's a, uh... Or clothing, this fact would enable him to explain their presence. Carved up a car, don't I love? <laughs> yeah, that's pig. It would <laughs> it would also appear that according to later recollection of police constable Mizzen, Cross lied to him by suggesting that there was already a policeman at the scene of the murder in Bucks Row. Many newspapers quoted Mizzen as telling the inquest that a carman whom he identified as Cross when he was when he was brought into the inquest room, had told him, "You are wanted in Bucks Row by a policeman. A woman is lying there. Why Cross or Lechmere would claim, if he did, that there was already a policeman at the scene when this was demonstrably not the case, and is something of a mystery." However, several newspapers quoted Mrs. testimony as being that Cross's exact words for him, "You're wanted down there," pointing to Bucks Row. Although only slightly different, this latter statement puts a different slant on Cross's meaning, in that he may not have been, may not have mentioned another policeman at all, but rather had simply informed Mizzen that he was needed in Bucks Row where a murder had been committed. Mizzen, on arriving at the scene to find Police Constable Neil already present, may have believed, with hindsight, that Cross may have meant that he was wanted by another policeman. Yeah. Obviously, with the passage of more than 130 years, it is now almost impossible to report accurately the exact exchange between the two in order to judge judge whether Cross lied or whether different reporters simply interpreted Mizzen's inquest testimony, testimony differently. After all, if what Mizzen testified was that Cross had say you're wanted down there, meaning that he had best hurry to Bucks Row because he and Paul had discovered a woman's body there a report observing the proceedings might have deduced that to mean what he was wanted by someone else i.e. another policeman mm-hmm. another possibility is that Cross did indeed fib to cover up the callousness that both he and Paul had demonstrated by leaving the woman lying there in the gateway because they were already late for work mm. whatever his actual words to Mizzen at the at that time, he was adamant at the inquest that he hadn't said anything about another policeman being there at the crime scene when 
he was specifically asked about it by a member of the jury. The juryman said, asked, did you tell Constable Mizzen that there's another policeman wanted him in Bucks Row? The witness, no, because I did not see a policeman in Bucks Row. Of course, it all hinges on Mizzen's actual, actually inquest testimony. But since the official transcripts of the inquest have not survived, we are dependent on the often contradictory press reports for any information we can we can clean. It goes without saying that the only crime scene we can actually place cross at with any degree of certainty is the Mary Nichols one, yeah. the first one. Yeah. His presence at all, the others is pure conjecture and falls into the what if. Could have been, might have been, could have done, might have done, school of ripperology. Yeah. Because especially if he is the killer, let's just say. Mm. If that's his first one... He's learned. He's learned, exactly. Fucking hell, I need, I need, I just got away with that one. Yeah. I need to get better. Yeah. I'm, so it makes sense why he wasn't spotted at the others. Exactly, that's what I think. That's what was just going on in my mind. Like you say, like... Oh, I, oh, I scrape by the skin of my lucky, teeth here. Yeah. Next time, I'm going to do it like this. Yeah. But even if he wasn't the murderer, Jack the Ripper was there when he found her. Yeah. He was in the shadows watching them. Yeah. You just got, you know what I mean? as hell. He was there. He must have been there watching him from the shadows like the beast he is. Yeah. Thinking, fuck. I got (laughs) If it was cross or it weren't cross, they'd both done better next time. Yeah. Whoever it was. Yeah. It goes without saying that... Oh, yeah, I've done that. Martha Tabram was murdered en route on a route Cross could have taken taken to work at a time when he was in the area. Polly Nichols was murdered along his path and he was found near her body. Annie Chapman was murdered on the same route days later if we knew with absolute certainty what time Chapman was killed uh, the case for or against Cross would have become clearer. The double event, the killings of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes could have been performed by Cross. The murders so far could have been done going to and from work. Does the killing of Mary Kelly fit this template, or was it an adventurous change in the killer's modus operandi? Maybe. See, I know Latin. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a holiday treat? A man who had got away with so much may have felt like experimenting. Eight days after Cross was discovered with the body of Nichols, another prostitute was murdered along one of his routes at a time when he was habitually, or could have been, in the vicinity. It is not impossible that Cross arrived at Pickford at 4am and began his workday by driving to Spitalfields Market. His wagon may have been loaded or unloaded nearby while he dealt with Chapman. No other suspect is so strongly linked to these three murders. Every day, other men walked these streets at similar times, but only Charles Cross was discovered beside a body. Um, so, was Charles Cross Jack Ripper? As with so many suspects, the honest answer has to be he might have been. Yeah. Which is going to be the case with all of them. Yeah. However, 
This answer is based solely on the fact that since he, we don't know who Jack the Ripper actually was, we can't dismiss or confirm any suspect with 100% certainty. No. The evidence against Cross is, to say the least, circumstantial, consisting largely of the fact that majority of the murders took place on his route to work and that he was found at the scene of one of the murders shortly after it had taken place. Admittedly, the fact that he he appears to have given a false name does arouse suspicion against him. Mm. And it would be interesting to know why this wasn't picked up on at the time. But he may have had another motive for his deception other than to hide the fact that he was a ruthless serial killer who was murdering women on his way to work. David McNam, McNabb, the producer of the Channel 5 television documentary that examined the evidence such as is it um such as it is against charles cross who was quoted in the daily express as saying the man who committed these crimes would have been local would have been a local he would have been able to blend in into the background and walk the streets without being detected lechmere that was charles cross was discovered standing over the body but bizarrely no one seemed to think that this was an important fact I'm totally convinced that we have found Jack the Ripper. Meanwhile, Edward Stowe. Another Edward. Pick up the Edward. <laughs> How many Edwards are there? Well, you know, there's only one legend. Edward, <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Edward Stowe, one of the authors who favours the candidacy of Charles Cross, was quoted as saying, the police at the time were looking for some sort of special individual, but most crimes turn out to be someone quite ordinary. He walked past every single murder scene on his way to work. He's the best suspect so far. Mm. So there you have it. Jack the Ripper could have been stopped almost before he had begun. If only the police had thought to take a closer look at Charles Cross, the ordinary nobody who, whilst walking to work throughout the early autumn mornings of 1888, couldn't resist the urge to indulge in a spot of murder and mutilation, and who blatantly lied about who he actually was. If only the solution were that simple. Mm-hmm. He is the best one so far. Yeah, by far. He's the only one so far, in my opinion. Yeah, so far, yeah. But, because like you say, it's on his route. He knows them streets yeah. like the back of his hand. If he kills someone, he could he could hide yeah, in plain sight. exactly, because you know where like alleyways are, you know where... Yeah, and if you saw him walking back to the car and he's got covered in blood, like, oh, he's had to deliver meat this morning. Yeah, exactly. You ain't going to bat an eyelid. You ain't no. going to think... Hm. He's just killed someone. Well, no. He could say, like, he's dropped the car off, they're unloading it, he say, yeah, I'm going for a drink or a fag or whatever. Yeah. And he's just gone out, had his knife on him, and he's just brutally murdered Murdered. women. The next one, Montague John Druitt. Montague John Druitt was the favoured suspect of Melville McNatton, who we mentioned earlier. Druitt worked as a barrister supplemented his income at the bar by working as an assistant schoolmaster at a boarding school in Blackheath, South East London. That was run by Mr George Valentine. In his memoranda, McNeaton lists three suspects whom he claims were far more likely than Thomas Cutbush, who we mentioned earlier, to have been Jack the Ripper. Top of that list is a Mr N.J. Druitt who McNaughton describes as having been a doctor of about 41 years of age and a fairly good f- of a fairly good family, who disappeared at the time of the Miller's Court murder 
and whose body was found floating in the Thames on the 31st of December, I, um, seven weeks after the said murder. The body was said to have been in the water for a month or more. From uh, police information, from private information, I have little doubt, but that his own family suspected the man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It was alleged that he was sexually insane. At the end of November 1888, for reasons that have never been satisfactorily established, Drew was suddenly dismissed from the school. A month later, on 31st of December, his body was found floating in the Thames at Chiswick. And it had been in the river for some time. He probably bloated up. Yeah. Like, on the 5th of January 1889, that... The Acton, Chiswick and Turnham Green Gazette reported on the inquest into Druitt's death and quoted the testimony of his brother. William H. Druitt said he lived at Bournemouth and that he was a solicitor and he lived in Bournemouth and that he was a solicitor. Um, the deceased was his brother. He was 31 last birthday. He was a barrister at law and assistant master in a school at Blackheath. He had stayed with witness at Bournemouth for a note towards the end of October. Witness heard from a friend on the 11th of December that the deceased had not been heard of at his chambers for more than a week. Witness then went to London to make inquiries, and at Blackheath he, have, he found that, that the deceased had got into serious trouble at the school and had been dismissed. That was on the 30th of December. Witness had deceased things searched where he resided and found a paper addressed to him. Uh, the coroner read the letter, which was to this effect. Since Friday, I felt I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me was to die. Witness continued said deceased had never made any attempt on his life before. His mother became insane in July last. He had no other relative. The jury at the inquest into his death duly returned a verdict of suicide by drowning, whilst of unsound mind. Druitt's mm-hmm. <clears throat> body was returned to his family for burial, and his name would have no doubt now be long forgotten had McNate not written his mem. Memorandum, 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 and named him as his favoured suspect in the hunt for the Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper. On the face of it, Druitt makes a strong suspect for the mantle of Jack the Ripper, and the fact that Melville McNatton favoured him as a suspect most certainly makes the case against him a compelling one. Furthermore, the timing of his suicide would explain why the murders ceased after Mary Kelly was found dead in Miller's court. Then, of course, there is McNaughton's assertion that Druid's own family believed him to have been the Ripper. On the strength of this seemingly strong evidence against him, there is a great temptation to declare the Jack the, Rip- that the, Jack the Ripper case closed with the death of Montague John Druid. Indeed, for many years, many historians believed that to be the case, and Druitt was the suspect of choice to many Ripperologists. However, (laughs) but on closer inspection, the case against Druitt begins to fall apart. Of course it does. McNaughton makes several fundamental errors in the information he provides about Druitt. Firstly, he is ten years out with regards to Druitt's age, 
as Druitt was in fact 31, not 41, when he died. Secondly, although several of his family members were doctors, Druitt emphatically wasn't. Magnatus statements that the murderer's brain gave way altogether after his awful glut in Miller's court, and that he immediately committed suicide. Most, most certainly did not apply to Montague John Druitt. Indeed, his mind was sound enough in the days that followed the murder of Mary Kelly for him to be actively pursuing his career as a barrister. Furthermore, he continued to work as a teacher at Valentine's School until his dismissal at the end of November, some three weeks after the death of Mary Kelly. Since he probably committed suicide around that time, it would seem likely that he killed himself in reaction to his dismissal. The most compelling evidence for Druitt's guilt is most certainly the fact that his own family apparently believed him to have been the murderer, but on closer inspection even this claim does not stand up to close scrutiny as it appears to be based on hearsay as opposed to hard evidence. Yeah. <clears throat> McNatton doesn't say that Druitt's family had any concrete proof that he was the Ripper, but only states that he they had their suspicions about him. Those suspicions weren't necessarily correct. Furthermore, McNaughton apparently didn't appear of their suspicions directly from the family, but to quote his own words, from private information, I have little doubt that his family believed him to be the Ripper. This private information may therefore have been a little more than third-hand hearsay. The biggest objection to Drew as a viable suspect is that Inspector Abilene most certainly most certainly didn't think he could have been the Ripper. In an interview with the Pulp with the Pall Mall Gazette in 1903, Abilene is quoted as saying, I know all about the story, but what does it amount to? Simply this. Soon after the last murder in Whitechapel, the body of a young doctor was found in the Thames, but there is absolutely nothing beyond the fact that he was found at that time to incriminate him. No. Finally, nothing that is known about Druitt suggests he ever visited uh, Whitechapel, nor that he had any knowledge of the area. As a result of McNatter's suspicions, Druitt is high up on the list of Ripper suspects, yet the case against him is dependent on McNatter possessing more information than he wished to reveal, and which he claimed to have destroyed so as not to cause uproar. Why? He's a dickhead. <laughs> Either that or he's, bu- he's bullshitting. Yeah. We've got to be careful with the language. Yeah, I know. Well, it, it depends on what happens. <laughs> Montague John Druitt may have been Jack the Ripper, but equally he may have simply been a tragic figure who, in taking his own life at it around the time that the murders ended, ensured that his name came to the attention of the police as they desperately sought a solution of the fate of the Whitechapel murderer. Nope. Nah. The thing is, right... If you are Jack the Ripper, you are not killing yourself. No, <laughs> no way in if hell. If you are that man that is so it, it's like that is now fossilized yeah. in folklore, <laughs> in legend, you are not doing yourself in just because you got sacked at a school. I'm sorry, it's not happening. I don't care what you say. People say, well, it could be him, but it's like, nah. 
why he's killed five at least five prostitutes he is not just going to be like oh i got sacked from a job i'm going to do myself in no you're nah. not doing that you're going to get another rampage yeah exactly if anything that just wouldn't you think that'd just make him snap well, yeah. and just go murdering everyone but no no i'm not him i don't think so um the next one is michael ostrog man like ostrog According to Melville McNatter's memoranda, Michael Ostrog was a Russian doctor and a convict who was subsequently detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac. Oh. This this man's antidepressants were of the worst possible type and his whereabouts at the time of the murders could never be ascertained. As with the other names that McNatton included on his list, Ostrog seems a likely contender for the mantle of Jack the Ripper. But once more, McNatton appears to have known surprisingly little about yet another one of his suspects. Ostrog was a petty thief and a con artist whose adult years consisted of several long periods in incarceration. Banged up. Mm-hmm. His only recorded act of violence, however, in a long criminal career, was when he was arrested in 1873 by police superintendent Thomas Oswald, on whom he pulled a revolver at the, at the police station. <laughs> One newspaper described Ostrog as having a clever head, a good education and polished manners, and observed that he would be certain to succeed in almost any honest life to which he might devote himself, but who nevertheless is a criminal. Mm-hmm. Following a particularly harsh prison sentence for almost 10 years for pilfering a few books and a silver cup, the total worth of which were no more than £5, Ostrog was released on 28th of August 1883. But by 1887, he was up to his old tricks and he stole a metal tankard from the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich. Apprehended after a chase, he was arrested and committed for trial at the Central Criminal Court or Old Bailey. Mm -hmm. During his trial, he began to show signs of insanity, and despite the belief of several police officers and doctors that he was shaming it, shamming it, he was certified insane and transferred to the Surrey Pauper Lunatic Asylum in Tooting, where his occupation was registered as a Jewish surgeon. Right. Which is, you know, being a surgeon. Mm-hmm. He would be discharged on 10th of March 1888, and as far as the police to whom he was reported regularly as a condition of his release were concerned, he disappeared without a trace. Later that year, at the height of the Jack of the Ripper scare, when the consensus amongst the police detectives was there was that they were looking for a lunatic with medical knowledge, they began looking into all asylum leases that might coincide with the start of the murders. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. It may it may have been this search that brought Ostrog's name into the investigation, and which later encouraged McNatton to include him on his list of three suspects. Certainly Ostrog's failure to report to the police led to his name and description being published in the Police Gazette on 26th of October 1888. The description concluded with the warning that special attention is called to this dangerous man. Right. Following another appeal 
in the Police Gazette, Ostrog was apprehended on 17th of April 1891, certified insane. He was sent to Banstead Lunatic Asylum, where it was reported that he was suicidal but not dangerous to others. Mm-hmm. Significantly, Mel- Melville McNatton asked the medical officer at Banstead to inform the police if Ostrog if, if Ostrog was discharged. This happened in 1893, and he promptly returned to a life of thievery, resulting in several more prison terms. It's just, it just doesn't add up, no. does it? He is last heard of being released from prison under license on 17th of September 1904, after which he disappears from the records. There is nothing in Ostrog's long criminal career to suggest that he was homicidal and there are no records of him ever attacking women. Furthermore, it seems highly probable that his failure to report to the police following his release from the asylum in March 1888 was because he decided to try his luck in France, where he was arrested under one of his many aliases and held in custody from 26th of July 1888 to 18th of November 1888, on which date he was brought to trial so he wasn't even in the country so i don't even know why people were thinking it's him no given a two-year prison sentence he was held in the lunatic wing of a french prison until his release in november 1890 since this is the crucial period over which the ripper murders occurred this would tend to rule him out as a suspect yeah 100 percent i think so there is no recollection of him ever being an aggressive Eat, like you know what I mean. Like yeah. would harm someone. He'll he'll steal off you. He'll rob you, but he but won't. That's it. But that's about it. I think the worst he'd do, he'd be like, hop, either pull a gun or a knife out on you, give him your wallet, and he'll go. And he'll yeah. And he'll go away. I can't see him now doing these absolute cr- disgusting murders. And even if he was capable, it's impossible if you're not in the fucking country. Yeah, exactly. Now this is what I think is one of the most popular ones right which is Aaron Kosminski yeah I've heard of that name yeah according to Melford McNatton in his 1894 memoranda one of the three men who was more likely than Thomas Cutbush to have been Jack the Ripper was Kosminski who according to McNatton was a Polish Jew and resident in Whitechapel this man became insane owing to many years of indulgence in solitary vices he had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class, and had strong homicidal tendencies. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889. Um, Kuzminski is of particular interest because in addition of McNatton, the two highest ranking officers with direct responsibility for the Jack the Ripper investigation also considered him to be a strong suspect for the Jack the Ripper murders. In 1910, Sir Robert Anderson, assistant commissioner throughout the murders, wrote in his memoirs that undiscovered murders are rare in London and that Jack the Ripper crimes are not in that category. I will merely add that the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him in saying that he was a Polish Jew. I'm merely stating a definitely a certain fact. But how does he know he's a Polish Jew? I don't know, and it must have looked different. <laughs> <laughs> How the hell do you know if someone's know. Polish and Jewish? 
Oh, you're a Polish. Unless they're speaking and they've got their Polish. Their Coria. What? Jews, don't they? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> circum- circumcised and that. I was going to say, like, <laughs> so, what? <laughs> so unless he's got his old boy out and he's speaking <laughs> Polish to you, you ain't going to know. That's what, that right got me then. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so you can tell if someone's a murderer by their old boy. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell if someone's Jewish. <laughs> what me? I was like, what? <laughs> that, was, that was never in the crime files. Uh, Jack the Ripper always had his old boy out. I was like, what? Although... <laughs> Although Anderson didn't name the suspect, it is apparent that he was referring to McNatton's Kaminsky, a fact confirmed in 1987 where Chief Inspector Donald Swanson's copy of Anderson's memoir was made public. Swanson was the officer tasked with assessing all the information on the Jack the Ripper case, and few people possessed anything like his comprehensive knowledge of the murders. He and Anderson became firm friends, and when Anderson's memoir entitled The Later Side of My Official Life was published, Swanson received his own personally inscribed copy. Swanson made penciled annotations to to Anderson's narrative, and in so doing provided a little more information. Where Anderson talks of a witness as as unhesitatingly identifying their suspect but refusing to give evidence against him, Swanson explains that this was this was because the suspect was also a Jew and witness would be the means of a murderer being hanged, which he did not wish to be left on his mind. He goes on to say that following this identification, the suspect was returned to his brother's house in Whitechapel, where the city police kept him under constant surveillance. A short, ter- a short time later, this suspect was taken to Stepney Workhouse and from there he was sent to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, where, according to Swanson, he died shortly afterwards. Right. Swanson ends with an emphatic statement that Kaminsky was the suspect. <clears throat> it is now known that the suspect in question was a man named Aaron Mordecai Kaminsky, a Polish-born, Polish-born immigrant whose father, Abram Joseph Kaminsky, was a tailor, an occupation that Aaron's brother Isaac would also take up. As far as can be ascertained, Isaac arrived in London at some stage between 1871 and 1873, where he became a successful and prosperous tailor. Right. We don't know exactly when Aaron arrived in London, but it may have been around 1880 to 1881. We know virtually nothing about Aaron's life in London. His later medical records state his occupation was hairdresser. But it was also stated that he had not attempted any work for years. Remember what I said earlier? <clears throat> Saying he was a hairdresser, so he's a barber. Yeah. Back then, barbers... Were considered surgeons. Yeah, they could do small like small job surgeries. Like... Um, well, get rid of a wart or something. Yeah, stuff like that, stitching you up and yeah. that kind of thing. So they have a basic knowledge of human anatomy and surgical practices. Yeah. Cool. Listen to you. I'm, I'm on it. Just call me <laughs> Detective Eddie Clayton <laughs> slash Monster Hunter. <laughs> there is. So yeah. So so in that sense, he has got a little. He must have a little bit of knowledge yeah. in the human anatomy where he could commit these heinous crimes. Mm-hmm. There is one brief glimpse of him in the public record around the time of the Whitechapel murders. 
In December 1889, he was one of several people who was summoned to appear at the Guildhall Court in the City of London for having unmuzzled dogs on a public thoroughfare. Right, well, that's good. <coughs> Lloyd's Weekly newspaper reported on this court appearance in its issue of Sunday, uh, of Sunday 15th of December 1889. Aaron Kosminski was summoned for a similar offence. Pol- Police Constable Borer said that he saw the defendant with an unmuzzled dog and that when asked his name, he gave that of Aaron Kosminski, which his brother said was wrong as his name was Abraham's. Hmm. Defendant said that the dog was not his, and his brother said it was found more convenient here to go by the name Abraham's, but his name was Kosminski. Right. So Polydor de Kaiser imposed a fine of 10 shillings, and costs which the defendant would not pay, as it was the Jewish Sunday, and it was not right to pay money on Sunday. Mm -hmm. He was given till Monday to pay. In mid-1890, he was displaying symptoms of mental illness and was admitted to Mile End Old Town Workhouse on 12th of July, 1890. His address was given as 3 Sion Square. His stay on this occasion was a relatively short one and he was discharged three days later on the 15th of July, 1890. He was then readmitted in early 1891, his abode this time being given at 16 Greenfield Street, which was the home of his brother-in-law, Morris Lubnowski, who was married to Aaron's sister, Matilda. I think when I said Matilda, I just think of the robot from Robot Wars. (laughs) Most people think of Roald Dahl, but I think of her from Robot Wars, with the tusks and the farm wheel at the back. Loved robot wars. Mm-hmm. Um, this time he was certified as insane, and on the seventh of February, 1891 he was transferred to the Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum at Colney Hatch. There's so many lunatic asylums, isn't there? The admission book gives his age as 26. His occupation as hairdresser. The supposed cause of his insanity is listed as unknown although self-abuse was later added, and his nearest known relative is enlisted as Wolf Abraham's brother, 8 Lions Square, Commercial Road, E1. Significantly, the admission book states that he was not a danger to others, which, if there was a certainty that he had been Jack the Ripper, would be something of a major omission. Mm -hmm. The admission book also lists the following facts about him, which are attributed to a medical man. He declares that he is guided and and his movements, although controlled by an instinct that informs his mind, he says that he knows the movements of all mankind. He refuses food from others because he is told to do so, and he eats out of the gutter for the same reason. The records also quote a witness identified as Jacob Cohen of 51 Carter Lane, St Paul's EC. He goes about the streets and picks up bits of bread out of the gutter and eats them. He drinks water from the tap and he refuses food at the hands of others. He took up a knife and threatened the life of his sister. He is very dirty and will not be, wa- and will not be washed. He has not attempted any kind of work for years. Aaron Kosminski would uh, would spend just over three years at Colney Hatch Asylum, 
where he was described at various times as being extremely deluded and morose. Rather difficult to deal with on, a, on account of the dominant character of his delusions. Incoherent, apathetic, excitable, indolent, but quiet and clean in habits, dull and vacant. <clears throat> on 19th April 1894, he was transferred to Leavesden Asylum, where he would spend the remaining 25 years of his life, dying there on the 24th of March 1919. Right. Schizophrenic, delusional, paranoid and incoherent are all the characteristics displayed by Aaron Kosminski, but there are numerous arguments against his having been Jack the Ripper. Swanson apparently knew little about his fate as Kuzminski didn't, as Swanson claimed, die shortly after being admitted to Colney Hatch Asylum. In fact, he lived for many years transferred to Leeston Asylum in 1894, where he died in, 19, in 1919. Throughout the entire period of his confinement, Aaron Kuzminski was never classed as homicidal. And it is specifically stated in his records that he was not a danger to others. Some of his notes state he was being he was excitable, but the only mention of his being violent was that once he grabbed a chair and made to strike an attendant with it. <laughs> but when you're mental, you do. Yeah, that. I'm not saying it's good to do that. No, but, like, but a lot of people in yeah, asylums, asylums and stuff yeah, do that. Yeah, because I think a lot of the time they were just treated as guinea pigs, weren't yeah. they, for new drugs yeah. and stuff. So they, but a lot of them did go mad loopy. <clears throat> Anderson and Swanson were the two highest ranking officers with direct responsibility for the Ripper investigation and they were both in a position to know the evidence against all the suspects yet unless they were are referred to a different Kuzminski or there is more information about him that is yet to come to light there is little evidence to link Aaron Kuzminski to the Jack the Ripper yeah. murders but I, he is one I'd say one of the most popular ones yeah but what I've just read He's not. It's the same as one of the others. Yeah. I can't think which one now, but where he was no danger to no. anyone. The Russian, I, the Russian guy. Ostrog. Ostrog. Yeah. Let's say that, that every time they say he's no danger to anyone bar himself. No. So far, <laughs> it's Charles Cross. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's the one that makes the most sense. Yeah. But at the same time, you just can't rule them out. No. And that's what I, I think that's what I like about the case. Yeah. But at the uh, same time, it ain't half infuriating. Oh, mate. <laughs> you just want to be there. Just so you know. Yeah. Oh, that would be sick. Um, would it? When it's in a murder? A brutal murder? Yeah, true. <laughs> but just say, like, I've seen Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Jack the Ripper. Like. Yeah. Thing is, when I think of Jack the Ripper, I think of, like, a very smartly dressed man with a top hat. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know why it might have been from like um, just modern culture, video games and stuff. I think it is. But a lot of people have said that he he was like very smartly dressed. He had a cane. Yeah, always feel like he had a cane or something, and yeah, had a top hat, and he was just but lurking in the shadows. Yeah, I think that's just part of his myth, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's like the legend, isn't it? (laughs) Where in reality, he's probably. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> some eagle looking yeah, thing. Yeah. Nasty. <laughs> do unto others before they do unto me. <laughs> I kill prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? 
Oh, so Josh's eyes, he's Russian, whoever it is. Well, he calls Russian, isn't he? Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> is he? Yeah. No, he's Transylvanian. Oh, same thing. Nah, that's Romania. <laughs> same thing. I'm pissing a lot of people off. Yeah, I'm just, sorry. That's just a mad racism there, mate. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. All Eastern Europeans are all the same, aren't they? Jesus. God. Don't want to hear your views on the on the Asians. <laughs> right, before we actually get cancelled, we better move on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, this next one is George Chapman. And he was Inspector Abilene's favoured suspect. Right. Severin Kalowski qualified as a junior surgeon in Poland in 1887. Later that year, or early the next, he came to London and found work as an assistant hairdresser. Say it again. There we go. In October 1889, he married Ludy Badersky. And by 1890, he was working at a barber's shop in the basement of the White Hart Pub in George Yard off Whitechapel High Street. Mm-hmm. The couple moved to America in 1891, where he established himself as a barber in Jersey City. Following a violent argument, and now pregnant Lucy returned to England, where on 15th of May 1892, she gave birth to a baby girl. A few weeks later, Kalowski also returned to London, and the, cu- and the couple were briefly reunited, but in 1893 he found another woman, coincidentally named Annie Chapman, and they lived together until she left him in 1894. Kalowski, however, acquired a lasting keepsake from the relationship, for he adopted her name, and from then on was known as George Chapman. His next lover was Mary Spink, who he claimed to have married. However, she died on Christmas Day, 1897. His next wife, Bessie Taylor, fared little better and died on 13th of February, 1901. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Unperp... Unperturbed... Unper- un- un- what? Unper... Unper... Chapman married again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, f- why is it with these stupid words? Isn't it? Use normal words. Chapman married again. But when his wife, Maud Marsh, also died oh my on the God. 22nd of October 1902, her family sought the opinion of their own doctor who became suspicious. The bodies of the first two wives were exhumed and, and significant traces of poisons were found. Chapman was arrested, found guilty of murder, and was executed on the 7th of April, 1903. Following his conviction, there were suggestions in the press that he might also have been responsible for the Whitechapel murders. So a journalist from the Pall Mall Gazette swore the opinion of the by-then-retired Inspector Frederick George Abilene. Abilene admitted that he had never harboured any suspicions against Chapman in relation to the Jack the Ripper murders until the Attorney General had made his opening statement at his trial. Since then, however, he had been so struck with the remarkable coincidences in the two series of murder that he had not been able to think of anything else for several days past. The Gazette quoted Abilene as observing that there are a score of things which make one believe that Chapman is the man 
these included his having studied surgery and the Whitechapel murders having been according to Abilene the work of an expert surgeon. Mm-hmm. Abilene was also struck by the fact that Kabalowski's um, no, Klosowski's arrival in England co- coincided with the beginning of the murders that on arrival he lodged in George Yard where the first murder was committed and that the murder ceased in London when Chapman went to America while similar murders began to be perpetrated in America after he landed there. Mm-hmm. What Abilene got wrong? However, Abilene is wrong in a lot of what he says about Chapman. Although Chapman did have surgical training, there is considerable debate over whether or not the Ripper possessed surgical knowledge, and the murders cannot by any stretch of the imagination be described as the work of an expert surgeon. Although Chapman arrived in London around the time that the murders began, so did thousands of other immigrants. <clears throat> How many of them immigrants poisoned their wife? Exactly, who have been known to murder. Yeah. Chapman didn't be, um, didn't begin working in the White Hart pub in George Yard until 1890, around two years after the first murder. Although the murders did cease once Chapman left for America, this could easily have been a coincidence. However, no similar series of murders coincided with his arrival there. The major objection against Chapman has as has to be that a killer could brutally <coughs> viscerate his victims with the frenzied violence shown by Jack the Ripper is highly unlikely to have turned to wife poisoning as a means to vent in his homicidal fury. So I mean it's not Jack the Ripper's MO. But at the same time, if you go if you've come to London, done these specific type of killings, then gone back to America. Yeah, but he killed people in like his wives in, in England as well. Yeah, but what I'm saying is if then you've gone back to America and done it. No, no, the wives he killed were in England. Oh, I thought they were back in America. No, because she would change it because he got married. Obvious. He got married who had, who had the kid with. Yeah. And she fled because they were, <coughs> he was being violent towards her. <coughs> he come back, they were reunited. Then, but then they parted ways and he married these other girls yeah. and who, who were dying. So they were all done in, in England. England. Mm. But. It's just whatever but we... Was, go on. Is that, is that the Annie Chapman? No, I don't think so. I was going to say, because if it is... Yeah, you've got a bag to rights. Come on! <laughs> but also, what we've always said about serial killers, they have their method, and their method only. He isn't going to change from slicing them poison. up to then poisoning. It's not going to give him the same gratification no. than what the Jack the Ripper man no. did. I mean, don't get me wrong. Not everyone's the same. He might have. Yeah. He, that's the thing. You can't rule it out because he is homicidal. Yeah. He has killed women. He's got a thing for killing women. Yeah. But I just think if he was going to do it, he would have done it in a Jack the Ripper sense. But in saying that, look at the first few murders compared to the last one. Okay, yeah, it's brutal, but... Yeah, they were different. They were different. They were different. So if it, if it was the same guy, he's willing to change. But from using a knife, because yeah. you've got to think he used a knife on all of them, Yeah. to then just going to poisoning, it's not the same. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Putting a tablet or whatever in a drink, Yeah. to having their flesh gliding across mm. a blade, 
it's gonna it's too it's gonna be two it's completely too, different yeah. feelings. Off, oh, I think I might be completely wrong with that. And there's people people out there who are like screaming, like, <laughs> no, of course he could still do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not saying he can't, yeah. but I just think if he was that obsessed with killing women, well, for one, Jack the Ripper didn't marry any of these prostitutes. No, they were prostitutes. He just killed them out of cold blood. Whereas these are, but at the same time, if we don't know who he is, we don't know if he married them. It'd be record. Every record of prostitutes getting married, they're women still at the end of the yeah. day, aren't they? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because when, when they do their inquests and stuff, they say, is she, is, are they previously married? Yeah. Or are they married still? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that's what makes me think that he, that he it's just completely out of character. Mm-hmm. Fucking hell. I'm getting, I'm getting on this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Um, despite Abelon's uh, contention that a man who could watch his wives being slowly tortured to death by poison as he did was capable of anything it seems unlikely that Chapman was Jack the Ripper huh? oh that's it mate that's it fucking hell oh. I just seemed like it was never ending <laughs> <laughs> with all these but I think if you had, to, if it was definitely one of them suspects that you've read out, mm. the obvious two are George Chapman and Charles Cross. I'd it's say one of them two. I'd say out of the two, Charles Cross. Yeah, I, I agree. Because it, it just seems so perfect that they were all on his way to work. Yeah. Apart from the one, but his mother lived nearby. Yeah. It just seems he knows them areas so well. With whereas George Chapman, yeah, he did kill wives, but. That could be for another reason, like for I don't know insurance money. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, I imagine they had got stuff bored. Like, yeah, but it just doesn't fit the mo. No. Whereas with Charles Cross, he killed, and especially the first one, him being there, mm. and then it's like ooh, that was close. Yeah, he killed. Was it Mary Nichols? Yeah, he killed Mary Nichols, but was nearly caught. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he was like, "Oh, I'm just on my way to work." Yeah, because it's just such perfect time. Yeah. And the girl was only just killed. Yeah. Like, within half an hour, I yeah. think I remember saying. So, with that, within half an hour, he Jack. if it wasn't him, Jack Ripper was in the vicinity. Yeah. Somewhere very close. Yeah. Because a, a killer don't just kill someone and just walk off. He might have. He, he seemed very sadistic. Yeah. yeah. I think, out of all of them, Charles Cross is the most likely suspect. Yeah. But like I said, there's a hundred Every suspects. single one of them could be wrong. Exactly. We will never know. No. no I, oh. That's infuriating. It is. But does it make you want to kind of look into it more? A little bit, yeah. Oh, I do. But at the same time, I think it's like a yes and no. Yes, because obviously it's interesting. It? But then at the same time, You're, it doesn't matter. No, because you, you can't. <laughs> You're never going to prove it. No. But it would be nice to put a face yeah. to Jack the Ripper. But at the same time... It kills the myth, doesn't it? It kills like the said, legend. When you think Jack the Ripper, you think of dr- nicely dressed, top hat. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If he looks like some gimp, you'll be like, oh. It takes, yeah. What's the point? It takes the romance out of it. Yeah, exactly. It it takes the the, the thrill out of it. Yeah, I I agree totally. But I I don't know. I think it's just that's my thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, like with all the cryptids and that. Like, I just, I want to know. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I don't. <laughs> I'm it no worse than it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you say, nothing will come of it. No. It's not like, oh, you've actually solved a murder because, well, he's dead he, anyway. He's not getting incarcerated for it. No, is he? no. He's already, he, he's, he's already six feet deep. No. Whoever, whoever it was. Yeah. But I do believe, I, th- I do think it was Charles Cross. Out of all of them, yeah. Out of all 100%. of them. 100%. Let's say, I might be totally wrong. If I am, or if you figure someone different, or if you agree, let, let us know. know. And you can do that via Facebook, which is our group, which is Mr. Mysteries in Black and White. You can DM us on Instagram, which is Mr. Mysteries underscore, the actual underscore thing. You can email us at Mysteries at Outlook.com. And like I said, that could be your theories. If you agree, disagree, who you think it is, if there's another suspect or if there was another murder that we haven't covered please let us know mm-hmm. um but also that could be not just from jack the ripper be anything Anyone. anything Anyone or anything anything yeah that could be like sightings you've had or you know people have had that could be your own theories on different things like what we've talked about or haven't talked about yet mm-hmm. that could be um criticisms of our podcast or of who we are as people don't know why we would but <laughs> How about it? <laughs> or praises, which we'd prefer, yeah. obviously. You could, uh, yeah, say what we're doing right. Um, but, yeah, anything like that at all. Anything like that at all. If you've got ideas for future episodes, mm-hmm. let us know. Um, like I say, next week, hopefully we're going to be doing a Q&A. Yeah. So with that, please send us questions. Yeah. Let's say that could be about the podcast. It could be about things that we cover. That could be about anything, really. Mm-hmm. Pit, pit, um, us as people. Yeah. You know, why have we changed the podcast room about? Why have I cut my hair off? <laughs> you know what I mean? Literally anything. anything. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, please, please get some questions in. That'd be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> you can um, follow us on Twitter, which is Miss Mysteries One. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, where we do tweet occasionally or retweet and stuff. Just. Mm-hmm. It's just another thing, isn't it? You yeah. can DM us on there as well. Yeah. Um, you can follow us on TikTok, where we upload weekly, mm-hmm. um, which is Miss Mysteries 10. But, like I say, all the links are on Facebook. Um, you can subscribe and actually watch us. Hello. On our YouTube, which is Miss Mysteries. Well, like, again, it's a bugger to find. Mm-hmm. So, please go through our Facebook. Yeah. And you can listen to us, even though you already are. But... Uh, <laughs> Josh? Podbean, Spotify, Amazon, Samsung, Podchaser, Player FM, and iHeartRadio. Fantastic. And hopefully soon, we're still waiting on confirmation with Combo Box TV. Yeah. But with that, hopefully when, or if we do go on there, it is £3 a month. And that is, that will give you access to not just our episodes, but to exclusive content that we're actually going to keep on there, mm-hmm. not anywhere else. And that could be behind the scenes on hunts. That could be behind the scenes of the podcast. That could be um, exclusive episodes, like off-topic episodes. Yeah. Like we keep saying, it, we're going to do one on dinosaurs because yeah. we love dinosaurs. If you love dinosaurs, watch us. If you don't, watch us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, sort your life out. Yeah. Love dinosaurs, and then watch then us. Watch us. <laughs> But um, we'll do probably more kind of Q&As on yeah. there. Uh, watch-alongs, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe certain interviews mm-hmm. and that what, what we might have coming up. 
<laughs> and um yeah other other things like that um what is it i think that's about I it i think that's about it yeah like i said get your questions in yeah you know all the platforms now let us know literally like i said it can be podcast related it could be us related it could be anything related yeah. if you want to know what we had for tea yesterday ask us mm. and we'll let you know exactly <laughs> Think, yeah, I'm trying to think what I even had. <laughs> I had roast dinner. It was well, too well, hot. Well, then they're not going to ask a question now, are they? Well, that was this week. It's one about next week, mate. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Happy hunting.